you have your Bibles, you can open them to Ezekiel chapter 6. Ezekiel chapter 6. We saw last week that after being commissioned to be a prophet, Ezekiel was told that he was supposed to go home and shut the door, shut himself in, that he would be bound with cords so he couldn't go out among the people, and that the Lord would strike him mute, all pointing in a very different direction than we would expect the work of a prophet. If anything, one would expect God would give a person eloquence so that they might be able to preach the word of God. Not you know, being locked in the house and not being able to speak, Ezekiel is given instructions on how to do four acted out signs, which all pointed to the coming disaster, uh, the fall of Jerusalem. Now we come to chapter 6, in which Ezekiel is told to prophesy, which is what we expect. Yeah, he's a prophet, he's supposed to prophesy. But I think it might be a bit different than what we anticipate. Look, if you would, at the first two verses of Ezekiel 6. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against the mountains of Israel. Prophesy against them. The opening of the chapter the word of the Lord came to me, indicates a new section is beginning. And as a prophet, Ezekiel was not simply to say whatever it was that came to his mind, but what the Lord told him to say. He is addressed as son of man. And remember, this is a title that occurs more than 90 times in this book. It is literally son of Adam. It is a reminder that Ezekiel is a human being and God is using him to speak to the people of Israel. But then here's the twist. Prophesy against the mountains of Israel. In studying this, I I find this a bit uh, strange and disconcerting in that I like mountains. I grew up in the mountains, the Cordilleras of northern Luzon. Um, And I wonder what did mountains ever do to God that God tells Ezekiel to prophesy against them? And I wonder if when Ezekiel first spoke these words, if people wondered the same thing. I mean, it's not bad enough that he's speaking to exiles who are away from their home country. But now the prophet is speaking against something that they remember, I would say, with fondness, if not nostalgia, the mountains around Jerusalem. Ezekiel is to prophesy against them. I was reminded of the story, and I don't know if you remember this, from Second Samuel 23, Uh, It was a story of David that he was in a battle with the Philistines near his hometown of Bethlehem. And he said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. You know, the water there is just different. And so uh, three of his men broke through the enemy lines through the Philistines, went and got him some water from that well. David didn't drink it. He's like, I can't. I can't. You guys risk your lives, so he poured it out as an offering to God. Um, Last Friday, I had a Zoom reunion with my classmates, and one of us was actually in Baguio, where Brent is, and he stepped outside of his hotel room with his camera and showed us the pine trees. And, you know, there's this sense of nostalgia, this, you know, this, it's a precious place. And now we're told that Ezekiel is supposed to prophesy against that which I think is very sentimental and certainly important to the exiles. And mountains aren't bad, are they? 
Psalm 48, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. It is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Psalm 99, verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Before the temple was built, people would go to hills or the tops of mountains to offer sacrifices. Samuel did, Solomon did. So what is the deal? Why is Ezekiel supposed to prophesy against inanimate objects, mountains? Why not against the people? Well, the verses that follow explain. Look, if you would, at verses 3 through 7. And say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Sovereign Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys. I am about to bring a sword against you, and I will destroy your high places. Your altars will be demolished, and your incense altars will be smashed. And I will slay your people in front of your idols. I will lay the dead bodies of the Israelites in front of their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you live, the towns will be laid waste and the high places demolished. So that your altars will be laid waste and devastated. Your idols smashed and ruined. Your incense altars broken down. And what you have made wiped out. Your people will fall among you. And you will know that I am the Lord. You see, God is to be worshipped on the high mountain, the mountain of God, Mount Zion. Okay? But we know that pagans also did that. This is the old question, which comes first, the truth, you know, the true thing or the, the counterfeit? Well, one is counterfeit. So either God had his temple built on a mountain because that's what the pagans did, Or the pagans did that because that's what God wanted. God wanted the mountains to be a place of worship. As God's people turned away, they turned to the gods, the idols of the land. They turned to their idols. And they worshipped on the high places. We'll see this as we go along. But they worshipped not only false gods and idols, they also worshipped God on the high places. Now, again, we would say, um, why blame the mountains? Why is judgment coming against the mountains? We're not blaming, God is not blaming the mountains, but there is a principle we find in Scripture that when human beings sin, their sin affects the environment. It affects the ground. When Cain killed Abel, Abel's blood cried out from the ground. So Ezekiel is told that he is to prophesy against the mountains and to tell them, listen, your altars, well, it's actually not the mountains' altars, is it? But they're there on the mountains. The altars will be destroyed, the altars of incense, and the people will be killed. So these mountains that had been the location of worship will now be a place of death. But verse number seven is the key, and we'll see this throughout Ezekiel, but particularly in our lesson today. Your people will fall slain among you, and you will know that I am the Lord. The judgment that is coming has an instructive element. It isn't simply revenge. It isn't God just being mad and, you know, wiping out Israel. There is, in fact, a lesson to be learned. Discipline teaches. Judgment also teaches. No matter how severe it is. 
Now, a side note here. You will know that I am the Lord. The word in Hebrew is Adonai. And if you look in your Bible, uh, it's all caps. This is what the Jews did instead of using the name of God. The name of God, we're not sure how it is pronounced. Yahweh or Jehovah, because the Hebrews did not include uh, vowels with their writing. The name Yahweh or Jehovah was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. God told him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he tells Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and deliver the Israelites out of slavery. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you. It is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship on this mountain. That's Mount Sinai. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's Yahweh or Jehovah. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you or sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord. And by the way, this is the first time that we find that switch. Instead of saying Yahweh or Jehovah, it is the Lord, Adonai. Okay. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Yeah, the people in, in Jerusalem, they've forgotten. The people in exile, they've forgotten. They have forgotten who God is. They have forgotten the name of the Lord. And so Ezekiel is speaking in the name of the Lord so that they will know that he is the Lord, that Jehovah is the Lord. As, as dark as this may seem, there is now a word of hope. If you look at verses 8 and 9, But I will spare some, for some of you will escape the sword when you are scattered among the lands and nations. Then in the nations where they have been carried captive, those who escape will remember me how I've been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil they have done and for all their detestable practices. Verse 10, and they will know that I am the Lord. I did not threaten in vain to bring this calamity on them. So we're told that some, in fact, would be spared, but they would be scattered among the nations. And there they would realize, they would learn the lesson. They would learn why God had brought such severe judgment on them. The language might be surprising to us. Their adulterous eyes, their eyes which have lusted after their idols, their adulterous hearts, their lustful eyes, and their detestable practices. Well, that last one we get, but why adultery? Why lust? Israel was in a covenant relationship with God, or they're supposed to be, similar to husband and wife. God had, in fact, purchased Israel. He brought them out of Egypt, and they were to be in relationship with him. But they were unfaithful. 
as one spouse might be to another. And we would call that, biblically and in our culture, adultery, when one cheats on the other. It is, in fact, and keep this in mind, it is a mixture of marriage and unfaithfulness. Because, in fact, if, if you want to leave the person and not be in a marriage relationship, one might do that. But if you remain in the relationship and are committing adultery, you're mixing things. And this is the lesson of what we'll see today in, in chapter 6, 7, and 8. That's what Israel is doing. Um, Jesus, by the way, in speaking to the religious leaders of his day, said a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign. In Exodus 34, do not worship any other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous, capital J, is a jealous god. Okay, but what about the lust? Now, we could see where people are being unfaithful to God. That could be called adultery. But what about the lust? Well, it would seem to be apparent that unfaithfulness begins with desire, with lust. And what was it? What was it about these false gods that so enticed the Israelites? What was it that made them want to worship these false gods? It is a belief, it's not spoken, but I, I believe it's there, that false gods can be manipulated to get what you want. It's closely tied to the principle of magic. and We've talked about this in the past. Magic is human behavior, which is a form of religious deviance in which individual goals are sought by means not sanctioned by traditional religion. So with magic, there's a very specific goal in mind. This is what I want to get, okay? Whereas when we worship God, the goal is for general welfare. It isn't simply about me. Magic is manipulative in its attitude. Worship is to submit before the true God. Magic is about the individual. Worship is about the congregation. Magic is instrumental, what I can get out of it. True worship recognizes God for who he is. They will know that I am the Lord. Okay. And magic is a relationship between the professional and the client, you know, the priest and the you know, the God, you know, whatever it is you want to get. Um, in true worship, we are followers. We submit and we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was, in fact, a specific goal versus the general welfare of your community. Manipulation, because you can't manipulate God, but you can manip manipulate false gods. It was instrumentality versus worship. It was client versus follower. And all of these led to lust that caused them to go after these false gods. Now in verse number 11, we come to a new section. And we see this because it is, this is what the Lord says. Look, at, if you would, at verse 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Strike your hands together and stamp your feet and cry out, alas, because of all the wicked and detestable practices of the house of Israel, for they will fall by the sword, famine, and plague. He that is far away will die of the plague, and he that is near will fall by the sword. And he that survives and is spared will die of famine. So I will spend my wrath upon them. And they will know that I am the Lord. When their people lie slain among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill and on all the mountaintops, 
under every spreading tree and every leafy oak, places where they offered fragrant incense to all their idols. And I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land a desolate waste from the desert to Dibla, wherever they live. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Here's a return to the theme of judgment. And I've not found an English translation that I'm happy with because here it says, strike your hands together. It's actually literally clap. And instead of alas, the word should be hooray. It is as though Ezekiel is told to rejoice because of the judgment that is coming against God's people. Well, how, how can we clap our hands, you know, applaud and say, hooray, look at the judgment that's coming. You know, if, if it's inescapable. You'll either die by the sword, you'll die, in fact, of plague, or you'll die of famine. Ezekiel is to rejoice because God is righteous. And the purpose of this judgment is so that people will know that God is the Lord. So far, they, they have not learned that. And Ezekiel will rejoice at the fact that they can learn this. The theme of judgment continues in chapter 7. We're going to look at chapter 7 now. And here we find three short messages or oracles that are similar. It seems to be repetitive. Um, But the theme that they have in common is the end is near. Verses 1 through 4, the first oracle. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel. The end is near. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. The end is now upon you, and I will unleash my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will surely repay you for all your conduct and the detestable practices among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. It is a fearful scene in which God's wrath, his anger, is unleashed. No pity. No salvation, I will not spare you. They will pay for their conduct and their detestable practices. The result, by God's grace, is they will know that I am the Lord. The second oracle is in verses 5 through 9. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Disaster, an unheard of disaster is coming. The end has come. The end has come. It has roused itself against you. It has come. Doom has come upon you. You who dwell in the land. The time has come. The day is near. There is panic, not joy, upon the mountains. I am about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will repay you in accordance with your conduct and detestable practices among you. Then you will know that it is I, the Lord, who strikes the blow. They'll know that it is the Lord, and it is the Lord who is bringing this upon them. The way that this second message, Oracle, is written, in English, the translation sort of gives us a sense, but not exactly of what we find in Hebrew. It's very staccato. It's just, and you're like, Ezekiel, you just said a lot of that. But the way that it is written, I think, has a certain force to it, and the picture that is painted is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. No pity, no salvation. And the result is you will know that it is I, the Lord, who strikes the blow. The third oracle is found in verses 10 through 13. The day is here. It has come. 
Doom has burst forth. The rod has budded. Arrogance has blossomed. Violence has grown into a rod to punish wickedness. None of the people will be left. None of that crowd, no wealth, nothing of value. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller grieve, for wrath is upon the whole crowd. The seller will not recover the land he has sold as long as both of them live. For the vision concerning the whole crowd will not be reversed. Because of their sins, not one of them will preserve his life. There's an interesting image here, that of the rod that has budded. And it recalls, and by the way, this happens, it'll happen now and in chapter 8, something that had happened earlier in Israel's history. Let me read to you from Numbers 17. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and get twelve staffs from them, from them, one from the leader of each of their ancestral tribes. Write the name of each man on his staff. On the staff of Levi, write Aaron's name, for there must be one staff for the head of each ancestral tribe. So there are twelve tribes, and the leader of each tribe is to take his rod, his walking stick, if you wish, and write his name on it. Okay. Place them in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle, in front of the testimony, where I will meet with you. The staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout, and I will rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. Apparently, the Israelites weren't happy with Moses' leadership, or that of Aaron. So God says, okay, let's, let's just settle this once and for all. Get the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes, and they are to bring their staff with their name on it. We'll put it in front of uh, the Ark of the Testimony. And that's what Moses does. The next day, Moses entered the tent of the testimony and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the house of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. So you have basically 12 sticks, 12 staffs. And in essence, they're dead wood. Okay. But the one of Aaron not only blossoms and buds, but it produces almonds. It is a miraculous sign. And God tells Moses, put back Aaron's staff in front of the testimony. It is to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. Sound familiar? The rebellious? So now when we come to the third oracle, where we read about a rod that has budded, this recalls what Moses had done with Aaron's rod. It is a sign of the coming judgment. So what can you do? If God brings judgment against you, what can you do? Well, you know what? Nothing. Follow along if you would as I read verses 14 to the end of the chapter. Actually, to verse number 22. Though they blow the trumpet and get everything ready, no one will go into battle. For my wrath is upon the whole crowd. Outside is the sword, inside plague and famine. Those in the country will die by the sword. Those in the city will be devoured by famine and plague. All who survive and escape will be in the mountains, mourning, uh, moaning like doves in the valleys, each because of his sins. Every hand will go limp, and every knee will become as weak as water. They will put on sackcloth and be clothed with terror. Their faces will be covered with shame, and their heads will be shaved. They will throw their silver into the streets. 
and their gold will be an unclean thing. Their silver and gold will not be able to save them in the day of the Lord's wrath. They will not satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it has, he has, it has made them stumble into sin. They were proud of their beautiful jewelry and used it to make their detestable idols and vile images. Therefore, I will turn, them, turn these into an unclean thing for them. I will hand it all over as plunder to foreigners and as loot to the wicked of the earth, and they will defile it. I will turn my face away from them, and they will desecrate my treasured place. Robbers will enter it and desecrate it. No matter what you do, if you're one of these preppers, you know, that you've, you've got everything ready in case of disaster, no matter what you do, no matter how much gold you've put away or silver, it's not going to do you any good. It's not going to do you any good. Because God is going to bring judgment and worse than that, God is going to turn his back against his people. All is lost. Verse 23. Prepare chains. Now get the handcuffs ready. Because the land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of violence. I will bring the most wicked of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the mighty and their sanctuaries will be desecrated. When terror comes, they will seek peace, but there will be none. Calamity upon calamity will come, and rumor upon rumor. They will try to get a vision from the prophet. The teaching of the law by the priest will be lost, as will the counsel of the elders. The king will mourn. The prince will be clothed with despair. And the hands of the people in the land will tremble. I will deal with them according to their conduct, and by their own standards I will judge them then they will know that I am the Lord. Calamity, violence, despair. Let's start out with chains, chains to take them into captivity to Babylon. You may remember, I've mentioned this in a couple of the sermons, that there were, seemed to be three factions among the exiles. Those who said that, yes, God is right to punish us, we have been disobedient, um, but that's enough, okay? All that's happened to us, that's, that's enough judgment from God. The second faction thought, actually, we're being punished for the sins of our fathers, our ancestors. It's, it's not what we did. The third faction said, no, God is a weak God. That's why the Babylonians were able to take us into captivity. Well, after reading chapters 6 and 7, I find that I am beginning to lean toward the first group, those who say, yes, we are being punished as we should be, but it's enough already. That it's time for God to sort of pull back his hand of judgment and give his people a break. Why is Israel judged so harshly? Well, if you look at verse number 27, God says, I will deal with them according to their conduct and by their own standards, I will judge them. So yes, you have the Ten Commandments, you have the law that Moses was given. Let's set that aside for a moment. Let's, let's not count that, okay? Let's not deal with that. Let's just talk about the rules and the standards that the Israelites had themselves. Even by their own standards, they are worthy of judgment. It isn't just that they've broken God's law. They have. But by their own standards, they are worthy of judgment. Now we come to chapter 8. 
and now we find out, okay, now I get it. Now I get why God is so angry. Now I get why God, in fact, is pouring out his wrath on the people in Jerusalem. Chapter 8 begins, it's exactly 18 months, uh, I'm sorry, exactly 14 months after his first vision. If you look, um, what is mentioned, the sixth day, or the sixth month, the fifth day, it is, in fact, the sixth year. Well, the first one was uh, 18 months earlier. I'm sorry, 14 months earlier. It would seem that at this point, Ezekiel is recognized as a prophet because the elders are with him. Look at verse number one. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting with me, why are they doing that? They recognize him as a prophet. The hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me. And I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man from what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the idol that provokes jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Somehow, supernaturally, while he is sitting there, Ezekiel is taken by the Spirit over to Jerusalem. And now he's going to be, he's going to be shown four abominations, four reasons why God's anger is, in fact, completely justified. He's taken to the north gate, and we'll see this several times. The north gate is the gate between the temple and the king's palace. So it is there that the political leadership can see what is going on with the religious leadership as people worship God at the temple. The first abomination is the image of jealousy, verses 5 and 6. Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see things that are even more detestable. Ezekiel is taken to the temple. He's a priest. He's somewhat familiar with the temple. And what does he see there in the courtyard? Is an idol. The temple is for the true and living God. That's where Israel is to worship God. And right there is an idol. It is an image, an idol of jealousy. And God says, look, look what they're doing to me. This is a place where people are supposed to worship me. And what they have done is they've included a false idol, a, a false God, an idol, in the midst of my worship. But it gets worse, and Ezekiel has warned that it will. Verse 7, Then he brought me to the entrance to the court, and I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing there, or doing here. So I went in and looked, and I saw portrayed 
all over the walls, all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. So he goes in, and these, this is the courtyard, this is the temple, it is the holy place, and he sees drawn on the walls all kinds of animals, crawling things, as well as the idols that the Israelites worship. Verse 11, In front of them stood 70 elders of the house of Israel, and Jaazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They, said, they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, You will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Rather than a statue or images, Ezekiel sees on the walls all kinds of paintings, all kinds of drawings of animals, of creeping things, uh, the idols of the house of Israel. And, I mean, I think that's, that's pretty bad. Okay. There's something even worse. You have 70 elders of the house of Israel who have censers that is... Uh, with incense in it, things that they would go back and forth and the smoke would burn. You're like, so what's the big deal? Well, stop and think a minute. Why 70? Why not 60? Why not 50? Why not 100? Why 70? In Exodus 24, then he, that is the Lord, said to Moses, come up to the Lord, come up to Sinai, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, in Numbers chapter 11, the Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the spirit that is in you and put the spirit on them, that is on the 70 men. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. Why do these idol-worshipping, these blasphemers, they're bringing these things into the house of God, the courtyard of God, why are they doing 70? What we see here is, in fact, a mixture of true worship and false worship. Yeah, remember back in the day when they went up to Sinai, there were 70 men. Remember when the Lord put his spirit on them? There were 70 of them, so we need 70 elders as they worship false gods. I think that's the key to what's happening here. Verses 14 and 15. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women there, or sitting there, mourning for Tammuz. He said to me, do you see the Son of Man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. Tammuz was a god uh, of fertility, but also of vegetation. And the worship of Tammuz involved mourning. <laughs> you'd go to church, you'd go to temple, if you wish, to worship Tammuz, and what would you do? You would mourn. You would sit there and cry. That was your worship, the worship you would do. And this is happening at the entrance to the north gate of the house of the Lord. This is the house of the Lord, and they're worshiping a false god there. 
Then verse 16, they worshiped the son. He then brought me to the inner court of the house of the Lord. So we're not, you know, this is getting closer to the temple. And there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. Here is the final insult. Okay, it's bad enough that they bring these images. They paint these images on the wall. They sit there at the north gate and weep and worship Tammuz. But here, they actually turn their back to the temple. They turn their back to God and face east. Which, by the way, I mean, the sun does come up in the east, but it does travel. (laughs) You don't have to turn your back on the temple to worship the sun. But that, in fact, is what they are doing. They are turning their back on God. Verse 17. Ezekiel, what do you make of this? He said to me, have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them putting the branch to their nose. Actually, not quite sure what that means. Um, But the question is, is this a trivial matter? People are like, boy, God, you're like losing your temper. You're you're overreacting. And God's asking Ezekiel, really? Is Is this, am I overreacting? Is this a trivial matter? And the answer is, of course it is not. Verse 18, therefore I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Though they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. So I said, we might be tempted to think that God is overreacting. Um, The visions, the oracles that we hear from Ezekiel indicate that that's simply not the case. There are two things that I want us to learn from this today. The first is, there is a purpose in judgment. As God disciplines his people, it has a purpose so that they will know that I am the Lord. When a parent disciplines a child, if it's done correctly, it is so that the child will learn. They will learn something. It has an instructive purpose. And so does the judgment that has come on Israel. By the way, if you know anything about Jewish history, um, after the exile, uh, Jews never did idolatry again. That part of the lesson they learned. But the second thing, and this is where it gets really tricky for us in terms of application. God does not appreciate mixing his worship with the worship of false gods. Well, with Israel, it's easy to see that. You, know, you bring an, an idol, you bring an image into the courtyard of the temple. Yeah, that, that's pretty blatant. You paint pictures on the walls of the temple courtyard, That's pretty blatant. Um, For us, I think it's a lot more subtle where we put our desires, our goals, our ambitions, and we somehow try to baptize it by using biblical language. I think the most obvious example, and I'll, I'll mention it, but I think it's a lot more subtle than that, is what's called the prosperity gospel where people say, if you do this, God will make you rich, you'll never get sick and all this. And what that is, is a mixture of a consumerist view of things. I want to get, 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 and the worship of God. So you will use God to get what you want. 
That's mixing false gods with the true God. But do we do that? Do we do that? Do we have our own goals, our own ambitions, and then we ask God to bless it? By the way, bless is one of those words that I think really can be used for this mixture of the worship of the true God and you know, getting what we want. You know, bless me for this or bless me with this. Um, we are, in fact, to submit ourselves to God. And it isn't about me. It's about the body of Christ, the congregation. The problem with Israel was they had not forsaken God. That might, have, that might be better. Just say, okay, we're not going to worship God anymore. Close the temple, um, put a sign out of business, and we'll just worship false gods. No. They were worshiping false gods in the courtyard of the temple. They were mixing true worship with false worship. And this is something each one of us individually have to think about. Are we mixing our worship of God with the worship of the things that we want, the things that we desire, the way we want our lives to be? We want a life without difficulty, a hassle-free life. Perhaps we want prosperity. Are we, in fact, mixing that with the worship of the true God? We are to submit, we are to humble ourselves before God. And hopefully we learn the lesson without judgment that we will know that he is the Lord. He is the I am. And by God's grace, we will worship him for who he is and not for what we can get from him. Let's pray together. Our Father, you know us far better than we know ourselves. Our hearts are so deceitful. So often we imagine that we're worshiping you when in fact we're just trying to get something from you. We are grateful that you love us, you provide for us, you do hear our prayers and answer them. We need to learn that you are the Lord. We are to worship you and not simply see you as some type of supernatural vending machine from whom we can get what we want. We shake our heads in amazement at the Israelites. How could they do that? How could they bring idols into the temple courtyard? How could they pray to you and to false gods? But perhaps we do the same thing in a much more subtle way. Open our eyes and our hearts. Teach us, hopefully without judgment, without discipline, teach us that you are the Lord. Help us to recognize that we worship you for who you are. On this Pentecost Sunday, may we be reminded that you poured out your spirit on your church. We ask that you would do so again in this time of darkness that we would not be carried away by the idols of our society, but we would worship you and you only. This requires wisdom beyond our ability. May you open our eyes to see the truth.
I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. By your grace, may we be lights in a world of darkness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.